Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain and this is another episode of Improv Nerd. Today's guest is John Lutz. John wrote for Saturday Night Live for six and a half seasons, but you probably know him best as Lutz, the character, on 30 Rock. But before we get to the interview, I just want to tell you guys, I don't have a hobby. And people say to me all the time, well, what do you do for free time? What do you do to relax? And I tell them, you know what I do? I talk shit about people. I spend more time talking shit about people, which means I'm a huge gossip, than I do anything. And I, I, it probably is really a hobby because I, I waste a lot of time with that. And lately, I've been so busy with my, my schedule, with doing Improv Nerd and teaching and improvising and performing, that I have not had any time to gossip. And i got to tell you something. I really, really miss it. Because some of the best times that I've ever had are going out to lunch with friends and we just talk about other people or at night getting into bed with my wife and, you know, just talking about other people. And I don't mean to bring my wife into this. I'm the one who who does most of it. Dr. Laura Berman, who is Oprah's sexpert, and I just like to say the word sexpert, sexpert, sexpert. I just like that word. She used to say that when couples hadn't had sex in a long time, and actually we're, we're at that point right now in, in my relationship because the other, last night my wife's like, we got to schedule a time for sex. And I just like, I was just like, I really didn't answer the question. And then today she got upset because she felt rejected because we didn't have sex. And I, I'm totally owning it. It's my, my own fault. It's my ambivalence about having sex. But getting back to this scheduling sex, so that was Dr. Lawrence Berman's thing. It, it didn't seem spontaneous. It didn't seem romantic, but it's really important in a relationship to schedule sex. So what I need to do with my wife, one is we need to schedule some time to have sex. And the other thing is we need to have scheduled time so we can, so I can talk shit about people because it's important to our relationship. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk about this interview with John Lutz. And I think you're really going to enjoy it because John talks about how he got hired originally for Saturday Night Live and how he went from Saturday Night Live to 30 Rock. And he talks about uh, the evolution of his character Lutz on the show and what he learned from Tina Fey. I also love what he talked about with the Saturday Night Live stuff about how to survive in a very competitive environment there. He also told us who he thought the worst host was on SNL and who he thought the best host was on SNL. I hope you enjoy this interview. When you walked out, have you ever done like a Letterman or a Conan? No. You're kidding me. No, they don't want me. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, no, I've never done any talk show of any kind like that. So, I mean, this would be, uh, you've done. This would be the first. Okay, great. (laughs) Now. 1984, uh, you were nine years old. You moved from Northbrook, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, to a suburb of Detroit. And you described that as a really hard time for you. Yes. Because kids were mean to you. Yeah. Okay. Tell me, what were they mean to you about and how you, what things you did to get them to like you? Well, when I moved, I, in Illinois, I had a really close-knit group of friends that I've been in school with since preschool. So they were, I had a really good friend, Jeff Schaefer, who we were best friends. And when I left, they had a party for me and you know, gave me a, a, you know, a, a Star Wars toy, and that was awesome. Um, they're like, here's a Star Wars toy, we're your best friends, bye. Um, and then we moved to Michigan and all the kids were really, really mean. Um, and they, like, one time I remember standing at the window and it was snowing and one of them's like, this is the first time John's ever seen snow. And it's like, what are you talking about? Why are you making... I'm from Chicago. Uh, But they also were mean because that was the year that the Cubs lost the pennant and the Detroit Tigers won the World Series. So they gave me a lot of shit about that. 
Um, and one of the biggest things was there was a time where they were, we were in the locker room and they were making fun of me uh, saying I had bacon strips in my underpants uh, because I shit my pants all the time. And then, so then I had a big, a big crying fit where you yell, cry, gasp for breath, cry some more, you know, that like, I don't, you guys can go, you know, and nothing, nothing intimidating about that at all. But you didn't shit um, your pants, did you? No, I didn't shit my pants. Right. They were just making fun of me. Right. And I remember slamming my locker really hard and thinking I was just like, boom, like, but it was probably like, <laughs> you know. Um, so what I had to try to do with these guys was I tried to be funny here and there. And, you know, they, they used to say that I was, you know, um, Waldo from the Van Halen Hot for Teacher uh, <laughs> video because the kid had like the same kind of hair that I had at the time. So then I would just like, okay, so they're into music. Well, I'm going to get like uh, cool music like Aerosmith. <laughs> uh, or things like that. And I remember specifically once, they, you know, Jump was big back then. Ben, and ben, ben Halen's, ben Halen's jump, jump was big. And I did a thing where I would just do like a, they would, the music would play and when they'd say Jump, I'd just go like, like that. Uh -huh. And jump really small and they all thought it was hilarious. I don't know if they were laughing at me or with me, but I didn't care because they weren't like being dicks to me. So did they do that to you? They would say, "Hey, do the Van Halen thing." Like yeah, yeah, like like almost like yeah, a train watch monkey. This. Like yeah. watch this. Watch what John does. It's right. hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And I did it because I was like, "Okay, this is better than." I had a similar thing where uh, it's so we have some parallel things. I was in class once, and people thought I had farted. So then they had given me the name Disco Beefer. And so that's every, pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And so every so uh, and I. Had, Total low self-esteem in high school, and so they they would come to me and they'd say, "Do hey disco beef or do the disco thing," and then I would have to get up and do you know uh uh staying alive, staying alive, and turn around. And I was like a three hundred pound kid, right? So I understand it was like you felt like a trained monkey, yeah. You know, you you did you I I remember being like oh okay, but then also somewhat relieved about it. It was a weird double thing. Like for on. me, I felt like I was accepted. Yeah, you know. Yeah. You were finally kind of on the inside. Right. And then after a little while, it got a little better. It was never good in grade school there. And high school was also tough. Um, I really didn't start, <laughs> I really didn't start having too many like friends until I started having parties when my parents would go away uh, when I was 16. So that was, you know, Alcohol makes friends. <laughs> and your dad was a Lutheran minister. Yes. And you guys were like very religious, but you yes. didn't really know that. When did you, I mean, you guys like, you said you, you would pray at the beginning and the end of a meal. Yep. When you went out to dinner, you did the same thing. Yep. When did you realize like, because you thought it was just normal. When I just you, thought it was normal, yeah. When did you realize like, oh my God, we're super religious. I don't know because, well, that I think it started happening then when we moved because when I, but not too much. I just know that a lot of my friends, in Illinois at least, their families did the same thing. So, and a lot of them went to our church, and most of my really good friends were uh, members of church or, you know, went to another church or something like that. I really didn't realize it, I don't think, until I went, I got out of college, honestly. And then I started meeting people, because I went to Valparaiso University, which is also a Lutheran university. And, um, you know, I saw different grades of religious going on there but it wasn't like ever stark a stark difference until I was you know waiting tables at Houlihan's in Schaumburg <laughs> and it's like then I met people like no one was a Lutheran at all and uh, you know maybe two people went to church and uh, you know that was the first time I was friends with a lesbian <laughs> and it's like oh she's pretty cool and I didn't I didn't know she was a lesbian but I thought she was cool, and now I found out she's a lesbian. Oh, she's still pretty nice. Hey, what's going on with this gay thing? You know, it's like, because we, growing up, were just like, you know, homosexuality's wrong. You know, we were very, you know, women can't be pastors, you know, very, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's a long answer for that question. And so then the summer uh, before your, your senior year of college, you call your parents up and you tell them that you have a five-year plan. Yes. All right. 
What was that? What was that five-year plan? My five-year plan was to move to Chicago, start doing classes at Second City, and in five years I was going to be on the main stage of Second City. Um, so I had like, I'll take classes here, I'll do this, I'll wait tables, I'll, um, I'll, you know, make all the connections, you know, go hang out at the right places and meet people, and then by five years I would be on the main stage. And so you were telling me backstage you end up in Schaumburg. Yeah. How did you end up in Schaumburg? I ended up in Schaumburg because I was so nervous to live in the city. Was that because you were li- because of I was your shelter. shelter? I think yeah. it was a very sheltered. Right. I mean, I really didn't. I didn't really have a true girlfriend until I was out of college, um, and then that first girlfriend was when I was twenty-five, and it was for two months. That was the first. Like, so I was Wait, what, very what, sheltered and very. What was your uh, What was your outlook on sex? Uh, well, not to have it until you were married. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you have a girlfriend and you're 25, you have sex. <laughs> Did you feel a lot of guilt and shame about that the first yes. time? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought I was, we were going to have a baby and I was done and uh, my life was over and I had so much guilt about it. And then that went away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but because, yeah, yeah, but... But that was all the same thing with like moving to Schaumburg. It's real not a great move when you want to get into acting and improv. But I wanted to go to um, uh, the second city out in Arlington Heights and take classes out there because I thought at least I will get some training and then if I like it I can move into the city. And then I just, the, they had closed that theater out there. So I ended up coming into the city for two years taking classes at Improv Olympic. And how did you find Improv Olympic? I saw Chris Farley's picture on the back of a book. Uh, I bought that book, which, which is, is Truth in Comedy, Comedy by Sharna Halpern. Yeah, and Del Close and, and Kim yeah, Howard Johnson. Yes. And, and, and read it and was like, oh, this seems like a cool place. Um, oh, and I don't think I mentioned this. The reason I went to I.O. was because at Second City, since I didn't have a major in theater, they would have put me through their level A through E or whatever. Right, which is like a, a beginning like, program. Yeah, which is like fill your body with sand, now it's blue. Mere exercises. Right. And I'd done all that, I'd done all that in, in college. I'd taken acting classes. I just didn't have a major in it. I was like, I don't want to do that. Well, what if I get a year's worth of improv at Improv Olympic, and then I'll go to Second City and skip all that, and then just never went to Second City because I just fell in love with Improv Olympic. And, and what was it that you fell in love with Improv Olympic? What was it about? I, don't, I think the vibe of it was kind of like it felt kind of artsy and, you know, uh, a little more loose and you'd go in there and the theater still you could smoke in there so it felt kind of like oh this is kind of dark and cool and I'm doing something that's very you know um, different and Second City just always seemed a little more school to me and Improv Olympics seemed like it was more real and just like you're learning how to get really good at this art form. So what is it about the training over at I.O.? What, what, what are the things that you learned that you, you still carry on to, like, when you wrote for SNL and 30 Rock? And... Well, um, one is to be on time, because I showed up a half hour late to my first class with Sharna. She stopped the class and said, you're late, that pisses me off. And then I sat down. And two dogs and, then followed? And two dogs. And then Chief ran by. Right. Uh, and then I improvised a scene with Chief, and it was really bad. Um, Chief was on my first Herald team. Was it? <laughs> um, it's when he when, when he could see, <laughs> and he still had his jaw. Was yeah. that Chief, or was uh, that the uh, other uh, well, Gracie? I think yeah. it was Gracie. Yeah. Um, I I really really what I learned was yes and, and I take that wherever I go, where it's like you know, that is a huge thing I use in my life is yes and just saying yes to things rather than no. And um, really, like Liz Allen was my coach um, for Valhalla for six years. And she was just amazing at helping me become vulnerable and learning how to not, to kind of open up and on stage be vulnerable rather than just trying to be funny and just be, be a good improviser first and then the funny will come. Mm-hmm. She was great, and uh, we, that's the you know we co-wrote the book yes. together. And did you take? We also taught a workshop called the Individual Assessment Workshop, and you did, never took that. Did I don't you? think I took that. No. Okay. Um, so we never worked together. No, I think we've improvised once or twice, like on Carl and Passions, or we maybe one show there, but we've never really done done much. Okay. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah, and I was probably Carl and Passions. I was probably really afraid. It's like, oh, John Luntz from Thirty Rock. 
that was probably right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it hard for you to take that in? Yeah. Well, yeah, because that's like you're the you are the person who improvised a two-person show with Stephanie Weir. So mm -hmm. I was intimidated to improvise with well, you. Well, did you see that show? Yes, it was fantastic. Oh, okay. It was a fantastic show. All right, now that was I, the first improv show I ever saw that didn't take a suggestion. Okay. And I was like, what's going on? Oh, well, this is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and you and Stephanie were just amazing. Yeah. Because it just, that show just took off and... Well, she is, she's amazing. It's patient and then it just started right. to just cook. It was awesome. So then, how did you get hired by Second City? Um, I got hired by Second City. Sharna was doing a showcase um, at Improv Olympic for some, uh, for a, the head writer, Dennis McNicholas, and two of the SNL producers were looking for writers. Mm -hmm. They came in, and uh, I wasn't asked to do the showcase. And I was kind of like, what the hell? I've been at Improv Olympic for eight years. Sharna doesn't ask me to do this showcase. What's going on? And I got like a chip on my shoulder. I was like, this is bullshit. You know, um, this is lame. Uh, what's going on with her? Why didn't she ask me? And Sue Salvi, who was in my touring company, I just quit touring. Uh, and Sue Salvi was like, you should just show up and ask Sharna to play. And I'm like, why? Why? Sharna won't let me play. I don't care. Screw it. I don't need to do something dumb, showcase for SNL. And she's like, let's. It's an opportunity. And you should just ask her and do it and go. And so finally I was like, okay, I'll just go ask her. So I attribute getting hired to Sue Salvi all the time because if she didn't tell me to go, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have done it. Um, and I went and I said, Sharna, can I uh, play? How scared were you? I was kind of, I was kind of just like, I was a little nervous, but I knew that if Sharna said no, it'd be like, oh, okay, she wasn't going to let me anyways. And she, she looked at me and she goes, well, do you write? <laughs> and I was like, I did a show for two years that was completely scripted in your theater on Friday and Saturday nights. <laughs> yes, I write. Um, so she's like, okay, fine, fine, you know. And she, she, she's a pushover when it comes to that kind of stuff because she, you know, she has to be picky about it. But then she let me do it. And I really wasn't going in with it trying to get a hired. I was going in because those are usually a shit show. Those well, showcase impressions. Because everyone gets scrambled. crazy. They get crazy and they all want their five minutes of like, I'm going to do this character. I'm gonna, and then it's just a fucking awful clusterfuck cluster of an improv show. And then Improv Olympic looks bad and Chicago looks bad. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to try and make it a good improv show. So I was focused on editing and tag outs and moving the piece along. And then it just it ended up being a really good show. And I was in it somewhat, but it wasn't like I was in it a ton. But then after the show, Steve Higgins came up and asked if I had a writer. Steve Higgins, who was a head writer. Uh, producer, producer yeah, uh, executive producer. And he came up and said, can you send me a writing packet tomorrow? Here's my number and all this stuff. And, and did you have, because? I had scenes, I went home and I like took scenes from uh, all the sketches that I'd written from Second City and from those guys, the group I was in, and then wrote a commercial parody that night and then emailed it over to them. And then, then what happens? And then they flew me out the next weekend to meet with Lauren. We had a meeting with Lauren on Friday. So this is like a week after the showcase. Meeting with Lauren on Friday, Saturday night, they, at the show after party, they told me that I was hired with Liz Kukowski. They wanted us to start the next Monday but I was standing up in Jim Carlson's wedding, so I had to go up to Lauren's table and say, can I start a week later, because I'm in one of my best friend's and weddings. what did he say? And he's like, oh, sure. <laughs> uh, and I was flabbergasted that he let me do that. So basically, uh, I went and to Jim Carlson's wedding, and then the day after that, I flew out to New York and started a job. So in the course of two weeks, I went from no job at all, having quit Second City, to having a Let's go back for just a second. You quit Second City. Yeah. Your dream is to be on Main Stage. Yes. Why did you decide to? I mean, quit the tour. Touring company. company. Yes, yeah. Sorry. Because after you tour, I toured for three years, and after you do it for long enough, you just get tired of it. The, the traveling aspect of it. You have to share a room with someone, and I was turning thirty, and I was like, I snore really bad, and so what would happen is I would keep my roommate up, and then they would keep me up by going like, God damn it, you know, and waking me up. Uh, I had people leave the room and go sleep with the girls because I was snoring so loud. And also because at, we wrote an original show for Arlington Heights. 
we had traveled to awesome places like Greece, Italy, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, like 30 of the states. We went to Hawaii twice. I'd done all I think I could do in touring companies, so I was like, I'm going to quit and just see what happens next. Was there any thought in your mind like, I'm going to quit, and that's going to put me in a better position to get hired by one of the stages? I guess that was there a little bit, but what happened is someone had just gotten moved up into a position that I thought I should have gotten. Who was that? I think, well, it was either, I think it was Frank Cayetti. Okay. Um, because he got hired after me. And then... Um, now, do you have, like, that happens, do you feel jealous or you feel... Resentful? I didn't feel jealous of him. I just thought I should have gotten a shot at that job. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of like, well, screw this. I don't need to stay here and just keep doing touring because I want to do that. And if they're not going to look at me for that, then I should just leave. And then, then when did you get SNL from there? It was It was like a month and a half. So, and the thing, the thing really is that if I was on tour, my touring company was out of town for that, for that showcase. So I wouldn't have, been, if I was still on tour, I wouldn't have been around. If I'd gotten that stage, I would have been doing an ETC show that was in process that they saw. And when you know, if you've seen an ETC shows or Second City shows, when they're in process, they're a little wonky because they're not a real show. They're trying to figure it out. And so they didn't take anybody from that show. And so if I'd gotten either one of those, if I'd done that or gotten that job, I wouldn't have, or didn't show up because Sue Salvi didn't tell me to go, I wouldn't have gotten SNL. So looking back, what's the lesson? You know, we have a lot of improvisers and actors that listen to the podcast. What, what's the advice? The advice is to just always be there to do the thing, like say yes to the opportunities and um, listen to your voice. If, you, if you're done with something, don't stick around just to, if you, if you feel like you're done with something, leave open up those other doors and say yes to other things. But really just keep doing, keep doing the work and the work and the work because there was that opportunity and it's that right time, right place thing, but you have to have done all this work for it to be the right time, right place. You know, I, if I hadn't have improvised for eight years here, just getting good at it, I wouldn't have had a really good show. And if I didn't say yes to doing that show, I wouldn't have had done the show. So it's just saying yes and doing the work. Then you, you're on SNL. You're mm -hmm. right for six seasons. Is that right? Five? Six and a half. Six and a half. Yeah. Um, what is the secret? Because we've known mutual people that have gotten the opportunity and they've lasted the 13 weeks yeah. and then, then they're gone. What's the, what's the secret of staying on that show? Because it's very competitive. I think for me, it was allowing myself to be new and just being quiet and watching and see how it works. First eight shows, I got one scene on. And it went okay. What was that scene? It was a scene with the Olsen twins where they're videotaping, where uh, Chris Parnell's videotaping it, and they, he keeps getting mad at his kids and turning off the videotape. Um, and it went fine. Um, I got to name all the characters after my family, which was cool. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then the next season, I got, I got a lot more stuff on. And it was just because I was able to collaborate with other writers. Like I wrote stuff with Rich Tellerico, and then I started writing with uh, Will Forte and Amy Poehler, and, and like branching out and working with other people, and realizing that I couldn't learn, I couldn't do by myself. I wrote probably two scenes by myself in the six and a half years that got on the air. So what do you do? You go, hey Amy, I got an idea for yeah. a scene, and then you would sit down and work with her. Um, so inside, you have to advocate for yourself. Yes. And you have to also be open to collaborating. And that's something I got from Chicago where I'm not a stand-up, so I don't just do it by myself. So why would I think that I, in writing, I, I would, that would be where I would lean towards. So I learned that I'm always a better writer if I have one or two other people writing with them. What's the, what's the scene or two that you're most proud of on SNL? Um, one, one would be... Oh, there's, there's a lot that were fun to do. One would be Time Microwave, which is a microwave that uh, when you're hungry, the food's ready, you eat it, and then you have to put your food back in time to when you wanted to eat it earlier. <laughs> uh, and it was an idea that I'd had for like four years and never got on, but then I got it on on my last show with Alec Baldwin, uh, and it went well. And it was just like one of those things where it's like, I knew it was always funny, but it just never was the right time, right place for it. And then Alec, of course, knew me from 30 Rock, so he might have advocated for me a little bit. Biggest jerk is a host. 
Donald Trump. Really? Yes. In what way? Do you have a story? All his, all his stuff was, all, all he wanted to do was promote himself and just thought he knew everything and was literally mean to uh, Liz Kikowski. In the middle of her scene, he looked at her and said, you're trying to make me lose my voice because he was talking a lot in the scene. And it's like, you couldn't win. He just was rude and... Um, if you weren't writing something about him being Trump, The Apprentice, or his book, it didn't get on the show. Host that made the, the ensemble even better. Uh, always, well, this, I mean, he was, he was a member of the cast, so Will Ferrell was always great. Whenever why, 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 what makes him so good? Because he, because he, he can make, his table reads are the best table reads you'll ever be at. You can re, uh, resubmit something that went so poorly with another host, and it, he'll make a choice and sell it and make it the best possible read you'll ever get from that scene. He just commits to things and is naturally funny. And he's very professional, but he has just enough goofiness when he's rehearsing something that he'll find new things. And he's just, he's just good at that. And he's just super friendly. So you're writing for SNL. Now you decide to be a, a, an extra on 30 Rock. Yes. Um, how did that come about? That was Tina saying... She Tina Fey. Tina Fey came For, for people that don't... Tina know. Fey. <laughs> Tina Fey, the writer and creator of 30 Rock. Um, uh, came up to me and said, would you want to be an extra in the writer's room when we shoot the pilot? And she pitched it as like, we just want to make sure there's funny people in the writer's room just in case we want to shoot to them. Uh, or maybe later on, if it gets picked up, we give them a line or two here and there because we want someone who can actually do the joke, kind of like what they did on The Office with all the background people. They wanted funny background people. Um, and so taking a, a note from Tina, who had actually done like an article about saying yes to things, and from Improv Olympics saying yes to things, I was like, yes, I would love to be in your pilot. Put me in there. Um, and if you see the pilot, you'll see me at the table, the writer's table, and in the background when they walk in where she's just bought all the hot dogs, you'll see me sitting and it's like me, you know, uh, 50 pounds heavier than I am now in like my own clothes, uh, sitting in the corner. And it was really cool to be a part of. And then when it got picked up in the second episode, I got a line and I was like, well, that's cool. And then they just kept giving me stuff after that slowly and slowly and slowly. Cause, cause like my, in my, cause just knowing you from Chicago, my, when you were doing it, I, I was saying to myself, well, John would rather be an actor than a writer. Yes, was that true? 100%. Okay. Yeah. And that's, and then that kind of shift happened. I was doing 30 Rock and SNL for four years at the same time. How did you, how did you balance that schedule? Because both of them are demanding. That was crazy. It wasn't too bad the first couple seasons because I wasn't in it as much. But the, the last couple seasons were crazy. There were, there were a couple episodes where I was up 36 hours straight, and I mean straight. Like, you go to S, uh, go to 30 Rock at 7 in the morning, you shoot until 4, then I would go and write from 4 until 8 in the morning at SNL, then I would get in the train and go back to 30 Rock and shoot until 3, then leave at 3 to go back for the table read at SNL that would end at about 10. And I remember one time being in a room, because my, my wife Sue is also on the show. She plays the girl writer, Sue LaRoche Vanderhoot, um, on 30 Rock. And we were in our dressing room, and I was crying and like going, I can't do this anymore. This is, this is insane. I can't do it. And she's like, you can do this in here, but when we go out on set, you have to be professional and do your thing. And so I did that, and then I went out and tried to be as professional as possible, but there were times I know people were like asking her, is he all right? And it was just me standing in the corner like. <laughs> <laughs> so I made the choice for the last, the last few seasons of 30 Rock, two and a half seasons of 30 Rock, I left SNL just to do 30 Rock and it was so much more enjoyable. And your character slowly evolved, J.D. Yeah. Lutz, he's, he goes from, tell us the evolution. When well, he first at starts. first he was a jerk. He mm -hmm. was a dick. They want, Tina really kept me, I think, in the show because she wanted me to be the one to call her the C word. Uh, 
which is that cunt. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I, I yeah. can say that. You can the, say the, that. The I can't. I can't say. She that. really. She wanted, on network she, TV. She wanted me to. Well, they never said that, but it was always like she called me the c word. It rhymes with runt. You know that kind of right. thing. And she wanted me to be that person because she didn't want any of the. She told me this. Any of the main characters to be unlikable. <laughs> so she was like, "Well, we're going to give this to you because you're not one of the main." Ca and, and I was like, "Sure, I'll do it because I don't have a part." So let's go. And, I can say cunt. I don't want a problem saying cunt. And there were a couple other things where I was like mean to Frank, and I was like saying, "You know, Tina went on a date, and she's like, it went fine." And I'm like, "You blew it, right?" And I was really like a jerk and mean, and 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 then uh, and then after the writer strike happened, there was the Milf Island episode. Where I uh, I say that I my you know my sister-in-law gave me a makeover, and I'm I don't think I'm a dirtbag uh, because she gave me a makeover, and that was when it first started to be like he was a little more of a um, a loser that was really kind of a nebbish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then it got more and more, and then I think um, Ape Attack was another one where <laughs> Jack McBride comes in with an ape mask. And uh, I wake up and I attack him because it's an ape attack. And I just became more and more crazy. And then really what I think it was is Kay Cannon was a writer on the show. Uh -huh. And she kept throwing me little tiny nuggets in episodes. And there was one where I'm dancing in my bra uh, at Blacklight and you see me wearing a bra. And at the end of the episode, they just have me dancing. And it's because Kay was there and she's like, just have Let's Dance for two minutes. <laughs> And, you'll, and then after, after that, other writers started throwing me nuggets and stuff. So Kay helped me really uh, turn into the big... But you're the butt of the joke. The, the butt of the joke. And, the did you, and you, what, what is it that you like playing, the butt of the joke? I think it's funny when someone's a loser and they don't... I, I think it's even funny sometimes when they're a loser and they're not a loser. But everybody that, that's my life. That, yeah. that is yeah. how I look at life. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it's funny when someone really is into going to pumpkin patches and keeps pushing that idea. And then people are like, why is that so weird? It's like, but in my mind, as the character, it's like, but it would be fun. We'd get like hot cider and we'd go get a pumpkin. Wouldn't that be fun? You know? Uh, and so there's just, he's just a little off, but he's not, he's not totally a loser. Um, he just doesn't know how to not be a loser, if that makes any sense. Yes, yeah, yes. Um, and then I really, I couldn't be more, I was crazily, it's, it's insane that they gave me such a big part in the finale. Because going from someone who's an extra in the pilot and then having an actual storyline in the, in the finale was, I couldn't believe it. And it was one of the best things I had ever gotten to do on the show. Um, and, uh, and it was basically, literally, that show's like always a show and a show kind of thing where it's me going, you guys have made fun of me for the last seven years. You've done this to me, done this. Well, now it's my turn, you know. It's, and so it's really like not acting at all because you're really yelling at the people who are in the room who wrote all that stuff. Well, did you have a little anger, real anger towards them that you tapped no, in? No, never. Okay. It was never real anger because, I, you know, I think it's funny that they would ever be like, they, they never made me do anything I didn't want to do. Um, you know, it's, it's not like I was could like, I will say not no? walk into a room with a tray could of pudding you, and could fall. Could you say no to Tina Fey? Because um, to me, I get the sense, I, I guess I'm afraid of her a little, because she's tough. I think you could, I think you could, if you really had a reason for it, you could be like, I don't want to do that. But really, I mean, the only thing I, I, there was one time where I was doing a karate scene and they wanted me in my bare feet and I'm like, eh, no one wants to see that. <laughs> Uh, can I have little booties? And they're like, oh yeah, of course, that's even funnier that you would wear little, little tiny sake things. So that was the only time I really, I really but made could my stand. <laughs> Did people say no to Tina? Because she's, I think she's intimidating, don't you? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Okay. I think because she's, it's so well thought out. She's thought about it already. Okay. And that's the thing about, people would always say, why don't you improvise when you're at 30 Rock? And I'm like, those writers have thought about this line so long. And every little word is placed in a specific spot. All I'm coming in to do is say the line as best I can and try and get the laugh. And coming from SNL, where you have to think about, where you're on the other side of that and you have to really think about the lines and really worry about all that stuff, it was a relief to just come in and know they'd, they'd work their butts off for this one little joke. So I 
I would never be like, yeah, my character really wouldn't say this. It's like they, they created the character and they know the character better than I do. Um, and so it, it would be weird for me to say no to them, you know? Let's improvise. Okay. Okay, we'll take a suggestion. Great. And then we'll just, we'll go, well, why don't we start with the location? Okay. And are we gonna get out of these chairs? We're or getting out of these chairs. <laughs> yeah, we don't. <laughs> Walmart Pharmacy. Walmart Pharmacy. Great. I think this would this would work for you. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean Anything would be better. I mean, at least you'll get like a couple hours of sleep. Yeah, out of this I, stuff. I just, I don't want to be drowsy in the morning. That's the only thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't let, let's just take it anyways? And I mean, it's all better right. than. We could try a bunch of different stuff if you want. <laughs> we should just grab all of these. This is the first one I saw because it just had lamb on it. Yeah, I like the lamb. Yeah, let's try that. You make a little cough syrup. Oh, you're gonna just go for like. I'm gonna just mix it up. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of holistic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, What's the problem? Well, I don't know if mixing, I mean, you can try them on, maybe just do one of these at a time. I don't know if mix and matching this stuff is good for you. Bob, I, my parents, that's all they did when we were growing up. They'd mix and match. My mom was on pills, she tried wine, it, it, she slept like a baby. <laughs> okay. Maybe, you know, I gotta say, I gotta say, I think there might be, um, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. Okay. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's not, maybe there's something going on a little bit more than just the, the, the maybe you don't need drugs, maybe there's something going on. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. I'm glad you brought it up. I think this is a good place to do it. <laughs> um, I'm having suicidal thoughts again. Oh my god. Yeah, I didn't want to tell anybody, and I just, I, I can't go to sleep, because I just think of like ten different ways I could kill myself. Ten? Ten. <laughs> there used to be only a couple. It was like, I go into the car, carbon monoxide, and then I would, that was one, okay? And then the second one was, uh, you know, around the noose, hanging yourself. Right. Now I'm up to like, burying myself alive. Uh, uh, wow. You know, it's weird. And, and then they're not stopping. That to me says that you don't want to die because I don't know that you could bury yourself alive. <laughs> So that's a cry for help. So that, to me, says you don't want to kill yourself. I think you're right, because this is the first time that I've told anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but I see, I didn't want to say anything, because you're so like religious and stuff. Yeah. I thought that you would have a judgment, like it's a sin or something, to kill yourself. Well, it is. <laughs> it is a sin. See, that's why I didn't want to tell you. Because you, that, that's exactly I'm not why. Gonna judge no, you're you judging me right you, now. I'm not going to judge you until you do it. <laughs> if you don't do what it, then it's of, not a sin. What kind of religion is that, Bob? The sin is when you've killed yourself, and that's when you go to hell. Anything before that is not the sin, because you're not actually doing it. So I'm not judging you So when you, you now, go and speak, to, okay, I'm dead now. Let's just say hypothetically, okay. I'm, I'm dead. You go up there, they say, hey, come up to the, to the altar and say a couple words about, about Billy. You're going to say... I wouldn't say anything because I wouldn't go to the service. <laughs> it's a useless ceremony at that point. You're dead. You wouldn't go to my... I'd go to, your, I'd go to your funeral. I didn't care how you died. I would go to it. Well, good. because Well, the thing is, I'm not going to commit suicide. So any way I die, is, I'll be going to heaven. So that is a, a, an important 
time for you to pay your respects. <laughs> oh, I, I get it. There, there's rules to this. There's rules in there's, religion. Of course there's rules in religion. <laughs> religion is rules. I thought, you know what, you're moving to the city now. You, 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 we got an apartment together. I thought, okay, he's starting to open up, but apparently not. Hey, I opened up. <laughs> I tried that hot dog place. recommended. <laughs> <laughs> That's opening up? Yeah. You've been here for four months. You never leave the apartment. It's You're loud. Listen. <laughs> don't kill yourself. Okay? Why don't you go, why don't you come talk to my pastor? Pastor Pat? Pastor Pat. <laughs> okay, I'll go and talk to him. No, please. <laughs> you want me to open up and you want me to take I don't up. like to be touched, okay? I, I don't mind being touched, but I need like, hey, would you like a hug? I need like, I, that was like, that was like a rape. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you thought me coming in to yes, give you a yes, hug. Yes, 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 it was a rape. was a rape. Yes, when I was in Cub Scouts. So, sorry, sorry. I can't believe <laughs> I can't believe it. I've never told anybody. When I was in Cub Scouts, I had a Cub master. And we were sleeping in the tent. Okay. okay. <laughs> and, he, and I woke up and he was next to me and he said, You want a hug? Did you hug him? I hugged him. Of course I hugged him. And that was it? No, that wasn't it. <laughs> he fondled me. Is that a sin? Yeah. <laughs> Did you consent to it? Did you want him to fondle you? <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a sin. <laughs> I got. I got to move out. I got to move out. I was only ten. Okay. I'd like nothing like that ever happened to you. No. Really? <laughs> that's why, that's why, um, how long have I known you? Uh, 14 years, never had a girlfriend. You've had relationships, right. but never had a girlfriend. Right. You're still a virgin? Yes. Oh. 100%. Okay. <laughs> and what's that about? What's that about? Yeah. It's about a, a, a covenant I have with God. It's about me saying, hey, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married, because that's what you said for me to do. It's important to me. You are never going to get laid. I'll tell you why. Because you're sleeping with God. God is cock-blocking you. <laughs> we are into so many sins right now. <laughs> you cannot say that. All it's right? true. It's true. I don't want to get laid. Just that word What do you want? What do you, what do you, what do you want? I want, to have, I want to make love to my wife. When we are married and want to procreate. Well, that is never going to happen, okay, until you start getting out there and dating for longer than two dates. I don't know how this came about me. Uh. You know why? Why? Because when you're back in the apartment, you're, you're totally closed off. I like my TV, all right? I like my shows. This is a big city. You came here for an opportunity, all right? You want to work at Kinko's the rest of your life? Yeah, that's good. Okay, great. Good tell, me what's, so tell me what's great about it's it. It's got good benefits. Okay, great. I have health insurance. Yeah. I'm just going to make a sample of everything. You are going to kill yourself. I am going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. You're going to kill yourself. I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. There was one time. When I was oh, a you kid. sure you want to tell me? Go ahead. <laughs> I was at a Toys R Us, and my parents were looking at a tricycle for my sister, and I noticed that one of the Star Wars figures was slightly open. So, I stole an Ewok. 
<laughs> I put it in my pocket and I walked out with it. I've never told anybody that. <laughs> I know that saying it out loud now, it's not as, as bad as being fondled by a Boy <laughs> Scout leader, but it felt, it felt like that did, bad when I was a kid. Did you want to steal the Ewok? I wanted that Ewok, yeah. Can I give you a hug? Yeah. Just don't read me. Sunday afternoon yeah. for rape. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I don't know. How did you think it went? It went fine. Okay. Um. I felt like. Um. Once, once we started, I felt like we were just talking in space. Right. I wasn't doing much object work. Okay. I was, I was aware of that. Mm -hmm. uh, if the scene would have gone on a little longer, I, uh, the only object work I did was I put the drugs in my pocket, and I would have maybe wanted to walk out without paying for it. Mm -hmm. But I, that was something I was like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just standing here. Um, How did you feel it went? I felt, well, I liked it. I, I like your vulnerability, and, uh, and that causes me to be more vulnerable. I'm wondering about the choice of saying, you know, the, the hug thing about mm -hmm. rape, because that seems like it's just, a, it just seems like an easy thing, doesn't it? Like, people saying, oh, it's rape, it's... It... Yeah, I guess so. I, that, I didn't mind that. I thought that, was, that could have been this person's crazy skewed way of thinking about it. Uh -huh. Like, it meant that much to him. Um, uh, I didn't know about also the uh, the the the, the uh, Boy Scout leader. Sure, it, you know to make that choice. I was going with agreement. Oh yeah, I yeah. wanted it. I don't know if that was inconsistent right. with the character. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I it's it, it seemed well. I don't. All I know is from what I was doing, and, and it's like that led me to then think about something that happened to me that was less. Like that was so awful right. that then I was trying to think of something that was so not as bad, but made me feel right. Like I'd done so, like trying to commiserate with you, but it was right. stealing an Ewok rather than getting fondled by a dude. Right. Um, so it led it led me to that. Uh huh. Um, and I did actually I did actually steal something from a from a Toys R Us like that, but it wasn't an Ewok. It was a I did. I should have used the more specifics. It was a little Darth Vader from the micro collections. The box was kind of open, and he was kind of peeking out. And I just a little took him and just went, "Oh, this is cool." And yeah, um, and I felt crazy about it. Crazy, crazy guilt about it. Now, when we got the suggestion of Walmart, yes, okay. Uh, I always like in those scenes. I'm like, I don't want to be the guy who's. You know, like just a transaction scene. I'm the pharmacist, right. and you're so you made the choice of just going to. Yeah, I didn't want it to be a transaction scene either, because that was the first thing, of course, that goes in my head. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, pharmacy. Right. Someone's behind the counter. Uh, someone's getting stuff. So I knew that it was either going to be you and I looking, you and I both as customers, or you and I both behind the pharmacy. We were, the, we were yeah. working there or shopping. Yeah, okay. it wouldn't have been. A transaction. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about that scene? Um, I just know. I well, I felt at a, a couple times we were arguing about things. Uh huh. But then we definitely. Uh, it was a conscious choice to let go of things. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's okay to argue in scenes? I do. How do you get through those? I think it's mostly knowing that you're not. You're not trying to win the scene. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to be the winner of the scene. You're trying to be the character as much as possible. And in real life, people argue, but you just have to know that it's still improv, so at some point, you're gonna have to relent. If you're arguing and you're fighting, there has to be a point where, uh, if the scene was just about you saying you didn't want to go to the pastor, mm -hmm. and then we just talked about you not wanting to go, then we would have, that would have been a boring scene. But at, uh, and it wouldn't have moved on, but you said, oh yeah, okay, I'll go see him. Or like, um, 
when it's like me judging you the whole time, I consciously made a choice to be like, well, I can't just sit here and be someone who is always pointing the finger at you. You're, you're bad. I have to say something about myself too. Right. I, I thought you did a great job with that whole part because that, to me that was a really good beat about killing yourself. You wouldn't even go to the... Yes. You, I mean, it was a great way of heightening it. Yeah. It was... I thought that was, I really enjoyed that part yeah. of it, you know. Because that was, that's a way to say yes to the idea, but that character is not, it, uh, it's a sin, so of course he's not even going to show up at your thing. Right. And mm -hmm. that's going to make you angry, mm -hmm. but that's, uh, and that, and that could lead itself to an argument, but that is, it didn't feel like an argument. Right. I think people today are afraid to be angry on stage. Yeah. And I think it's different than argument. Do, do yes. you see? I think there's a, I think it's a fundamental thing of improv argument. An improv argument is, let's, uh, uh, hey, hand me that plate. No. Could you hand me that plate? No. That's the, that's an improv argument. Uh, I feel like getting angry as a character you can you can fight as characters as long as you know at some point someone's going to have to relent you know uh-huh okay we're going to take uh we're going to take some questions from the audience okay cool okay if we get to, emily if you could turn the lights on great great we're getting some emily yeah. we're getting some music out here what? yeah <laughs> thank you great um i saw your show last night with guy yes Thank you. Um, you're, and it's, it's Pam, right? Um, one of the many things, it was just, uh, it was definitely my top, I've seen a lot of shows, it was my top five favorite shows of all time. So thank you for, for thank giving you. that experience. Um, and technically your transitions were some of the most seamless transitions I've seen improvisers make, um, where obviously no sweeping at all, but just subtly moving. And I'm wondering how you practiced that in rehearsal, how you got to that point. Well, I think, at least for me, we tried to do that with the, a group I was in called JPS Brown. And then when we did Foursquare, which was myself, Dan Bacadal, um, Pete Gross, and Rob Janis, that was our whole idea where we didn't want to ever have any type of sweep edit or tag out. We, just, we were just looking to make things look a little more fluid. And then I think working with Adsit, he's just so good that, and especially with a two-person show, you don't really need to sweep at it because you both, if you're just aware, I think the key is to, if you're aware of anything that's different, and that's what Craig Kukowski would teach us in JTS Brown, if somebody all of a sudden stands up and it's out of character, that's something different, that's an edit. If someone's voice changes, that's an edit. That someone moves to a different side of the stage and makes it a very uh, strong move, that's an edit. So it's just being aware of something different happening and then following that and rather than calling it out and being like, why did you walk through the table? Um, and getting a, a half laugh from the audience. Just being like, oh, he walked through the table. He's, we're not in the same scene right now. So take a second, let it sit in, and then all of a sudden you'll be, know you're in a different scene. Great. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's your name? My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. Are you from out of town or are you from here? No, I moved here about six months ago. Okay. Um, in your scene just now, you, you stole the Star Wars thing, mm -hmm. and you had mentioned that you've done that, and previously you were talking about uh, you know, your belief to like, save yourself from marriage and all that. And I was just wondering, uh, in your improv, how much of it are, is it you saying, how can I slip my own personal happenings into this because it's kind of funny or, or it fits the situation and how much of it is just you as a character just saying stuff? It's really more the latter. It's almost being, it's not trying to force your stuff into it. It's what happened for me is all of a sudden when I was taking classes, there was a time where I had recalled something from a psych book from college and sent that information out into the scene and it wasn't like I was searching a way to put that information into the show. It was just my mind was open to uh, the possibilities of what this thing could be and that popped in my brain so I just used it. So it's like using, not, not ever putting away who you are, um, not forcing it, but if something pops in your head that's real, that's, that applies, then you use it. Um, not trying to be funny, but just trying to serve the scene. Great. Yeah, I really enjoyed hearing your story and uh, 
what I heard was a lot of it's about networking and relationships you build. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I had a question like, uh, when you get intimidated, were you ever intimidated like your first time on a show or something? And like, how do you deal with intimidation? You know, like when I have a new gig that's with, you know, a different level, then I tend to get a little intimidated. Yeah. Um, I, two things. One, it's that improv thing of fake it and no one can tell. If you're on stage and you look confident, people will think you're confident, even though you're in your head, you're going, what am I doing? Uh, and because like two seconds in your head can be like forever, but it's just kind of faking it, really. The second thing is I, I become an observer when I get into a new situation. So I'm a little quieter. I am kind of shy when I'm in a new situation and I just kind of see what you're supposed to do and how other people are doing it and then I follow their lead rather than going in with a head full of steams thinking I know how to do it. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, I had a question for you. How would you say your approach to writing was different on SNL as was to uh, doing tour core or the Friday night show? Well, one thing for sure that's different is that it's live television, so you, so you had to format it in a way where it's for TV, not for stage. So that means um, I had to think a lot about how it would be shot. Um, that too being said, you can do um, a lot more on stage that's just like fake. But in, on SNL, if someone was playing the president, that person needed to look and sound like the president. If you're playing someone real, they have to look like that. If they're holding a prop, it had to be real. Second City, you could make a helicopter out of someone taking a belt and swinging it around their head. If you're doing it for SNL, you have to have the set designers gonna have to build a helicopter for you. So it had to be, it's that, just that mindset of like, taking everything I learned from Second City and going, well, how, what pieces can I use to fit into this style? Great, we got one more question here. Uh, just two quick questions. I'm a just uh, one more question. <laughs> Sorry. Um, as an improviser, the the idea of playing one character like you did on Thirty Rock for a long, a long, longer period of time seems really daunting. At any point, did you ever get maybe envious of the other characters on the show that got to play bigger, like a Tracy Morgan, where your character was a little bit more grounded? Was that ever an issue for you? It's a little bit. He's that lots with somebody you might see on the street. You never meet Donaghy or. Tracy Jordan in real life. Yeah, you know, I never, I never worried about that so much, just because um, it, it's, it's fun to figure out what, what your character is going to do more and more. And I, honestly, it's weird. I play really big characters uh, in improv and stuff, but some of the most fun I have is when I play a character that's very subtle and quiet. Um, like uh, one of my, f lately, like the front desk we were talking mm -hmm. about, it was fun for me to do a web series where I was just reacting to somebody and not being a crazy character, but still being able to get laughs out of just how I was responding to stuff. Um, so it never, it never, ne that never bothered me. And then I also wondered maybe uh, what's coming next. Now that 30 Rock is over, you might find, uh, find yourself on another TV show. And do you think that whatever the next project is will be as mad. I'm a huge 30 Rock fan. Something as magical and, and well put together as that. Are, are a lot of shows that well written and such a strong cast and like? This is like ten questions. <laughs> uh, no. Worry about that at all? Like ten? Is I don't. More unique on on set than it was on screen. I don't. Um. Well, I will just say that it was a very wonderful show to be on. And it was so well written, and the cast was so fun, and I got to be in a show with people that I knew and were friends with, which is crazy. Being in a show where I was with Jack McBrayer, and I started around the same time he did is insane. Um, and it, it, it's, it was such a well written, well put together show that I, I don't know if I'll be on another show that, like that, but I'm not necessarily concerned that it'll never happen again. I also am a writer, so it's my job to kind of maybe write my own thing and try and make it as good. Uh, and I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been very lucky to be a part of a lot of cool things, and I just know that there's, there's, there's a wealth of cool things to be out there. Uh, you know, 
uh, being on SNL, being one of them, being on 30X, another. And if you do a couple small things that don't work, that's, that's just like improv. You'll have shitty shows and then they go away. You can do a shitty pilot and it'll never air or you can be on a show. Um, so I, I don't worry about that so much because um, I also think that you just try to put your best work out in whatever show it is. Like I'm not necessarily a big fan of Mike and Molly, but I think that Melissa McCarthy is really good on that show. And she does her best and she's really good. And I think you just do um, do your best in every project that you can do. Now the last couple seasons of 30 Rock, the yeah. critics were kind of hard on it. Yeah, of course they were. Do you think there was any warrant to that? I think so sometimes, but you know, every, there were episodes that weren't as good as others and that's just what happens. I think that, you know, when a show wins that many awards and, and gets to a point where it's at, after five years of winning tons and tons of Emmys, people are going to be like, it's not as good. And it can be just the same. Uh, it's just they've seen it before. So they're used to it and they want something. They want it to be new but the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think just when someone's on top of the thing, people like to knock it down. So I know in eventually Modern Family, who's winning all these Emmys, is eventually going to stop winning Emmys. Because people are going to be like, oh, it's the same show. We've seen it before. All these, It's just what happens when a show's on the air for six or seven or eight years. What have you learned working with Tina Fey? Um, the biggest thing that I learned is that I'm lazy. <laughs> she works her butt off. What, in what way? She, I, I just, she, will, she will have a book deal, uh, working on a movie, producing a movie, writing on uh, you know, 30 Rock, being in it. Having um, two kids. Having two kids, all these things. And then, you know, I look at what I do, and it's like, uh, well, some days I wake up at uh, 11 o'clock, and then I watch The Chew uh, <laughs> and get an idea for a recipe for tonight for dinner. Um, and so it, it's motivated me to, the, the, the reason I think she's so successful is, one, she's talented and very funny, but she's also one of the hardest working people. Is so you, do you think that's going. the secret of her success? Because of all, I remember it was her, Amy, and Stephanie were mm -hmm. when I was running. And if you would have told me I had to bet on anyone, I would have bet on Stephanie Ware. Yeah. I mean, amazing, yeah. amazing. Tina was heavier then. She lost a lot of weight. Do you think that's the, the, the difference? Because they're all the same. And they're all very, very talented. I don't know. I, I think it is there, but I still think I think Stephanie Ware is very uh, a hard worker as well. I mean, she's she's working on um, raising hope right now. Oh, not raising, yeah, raising, raising hope. hope. And then she's also writing an original pilot, and she's also she does a lot of stuff. I think it's just I think it's a combination of really hard working, being really talented, and having those opportunities yeah. to do it. Because I think being on SNL is a little bit bigger leg up than being on Mad TV. Mm -hmm. And I think that... That's the difference between Tina and Amy, you think? Uh, I think that's the difference between uh, Tina and Stephanie. Okay. Because Stephanie was on Mad TV for five years, but that show just didn't... I don't know. I just don't think that show... You don't, you don't have Lorne, who then will be like, do you have a TV idea? Write this TV idea and we'll produce it. That's what happened with Tina. On Mad TV, it's not... That's, that, Lorne just, I think, can help people a lot more if they work hard a lot. Do you have an idea for Lauren? I have, and none of them have made it. Um, John? Well, well yeah, yeah, we've tried, um, and it's that's just the thing. Like, I've read a, I wrote a pilot for him, and uh, we had a movie that we wrote for him, and then it's just hard to get things going sometimes, so. John Lutz, thank you so much for being our thank guest. Thank you. All right, there you have it. It's another episode of Improv Nerd, and I want to thank our guest today, John Lutz, and the good people here at Stage 773 in Chicago, and as always, our producer, Ben Caprero. To download past and future episodes of Improv Nerd, go to feralaudio.com and check out the other cool podcasts like Dan Harmon's Harmontown. For my improv blog and more information about my award-winning classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, go to jimmycarane.com. And please go to the Improv Nerd Fanbook Facebook page and like us. It really helps with my low self-esteem. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run.
Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicide thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's, like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my, my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. People. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my. <laughs> <laughs>